0: So I I do want to be honest, I did write most of this message, most of the sermon tonight on my birthday, and I share that so that you would wish me happy birthday, and then, thank you, wow, my dreams are coming true, and so that you'd admire, like, my servant leadership. No, I'm totally just kidding. Um, But it is the first time I've ever written a sermon drinking a milkshake. I don't want to say it was a divine encounter and overstep, but I feel like Book of First Opinions 5, like... The Lord says milkshakes are blessed, and it was amazing. So there's a few other milkshake people in here. All the people that are dairy-free are like, I hate this community. I hate this message introduction. (laughs) Calm down, Trinity. It's okay. (laughs) If you don't know already, if you go on your birthday and show your state-issued ID at Good Stuff Eatery, they will give you what is normally a $6 milkshake. It It is birthday cake flavored. That's not normally for me, but free flavor is what I'm all about. And so that's where I was working uh, on this message. So just so you know, I've had a good week. I hope you have had a good week as well. If you are here with us last week, we're in this series called More Than or More Than Conquerors. And it comes from this phrase that Paul uses in a letter that he wrote to kind of a fledgling, upstart church or group of believers in the city of Rome. We find that context and we find that passage in the New Testament in the second half of our Bibles. But this was written about 2,000 years ago. But the confusing part is it's not in the Old Testament and the New Testament and if maybe you're new to Christianity or new to the Bible another kind of layer of complexity is that the person that wrote it is Paul but he used to be known by another name Saul and it's like the best but weirdest but most amazing kind of rags-to-riches story, except it's not rags and it's not riches. Like, he was a religious extremist who could maybe be, like, called a terrorist, and, and he was, like, harming people that believed in Jesus. He was, like, rounding them up at the synagogue. He was uh, at, at Stephen's stoning. Like, he was there while people are, are, are being <laughs> physically beaten. And then he has this radical encounter with Jesus one day, and he gets a name change, but even more than that, uh, he gets a heart change. Then he actually becomes one of those people that is like talking about Jesus wherever he went, both with people from a non-Jewish background, Gentiles, but also with Jewish uh, believers who are interested in finding out who the Messiah is or what is Jesus claiming to be. And if if maybe you don't read the Bible in your spare time or you're not part of a life group yet, I, I want to encourage you: the Bible is absolutely not boring. Uh, it's a weird book. It's a strange book. I think it's, it's more nuanced than just saying it's like an instruction manual. I think it really is us discovering who God is and who we are through the lens of some pretty interesting people. So if that fits kind of where you're at, I would advise starting in the Gospel of John or Song of Solomon. You know, you do you, whatever you want to start at, that's fine. If we had to sum up... This entire message tonight, like in one tweet, in one moment, I know it's a little bit kind of spoiler because I haven't built up kind of into the, the sermon thesis yet, but it's this. If you want to write it down, great. If you're not taking notes, good luck with life. Um, here, here it is. It's, it's we aren't gathered here just for ourselves. We aren't gathered here just for ourselves. And I want to use this verse, a very small verse from the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, It's a part of wisdom literature, and I want to use this as an illustration kind of to where we're going over the next 20 or 30 or maybe 45 minutes, just kidding, 30 minutes tonight. Proverbs 3.5, so if you have a Bible with you or you have an app, maybe you want to look on the screens. I'm reading out of the NLT, and it says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. So short verse, so I'll just do some short reflections on it. This passage tells us a few things. It reminds us that we have intellectual capabilities, that we have understanding. Secondly, it's saying that we should use them. We should operate from that intellectual capability. But then the kicker is the third thing that we can notice is that we aren't supposed to rely on ourselves. It's interesting. It doesn't say don't have understanding or, hey, check your mind at the door before you come into a worship service. It just says, hey, as you're navigating life, you may not know everything, so don't rely just on yourself. That's why in the same letter to the church at Rome, Paul writes something that I think is so important for us to grapple with. He says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. He doesn't say by the renewing of our heart or our soul or our spirit, but he talks about the renewing Of our mind. And I think for a long time in worship services and communities like this, there was this weird idea that, like, you couldn't be thoughtful and Christian, or you couldn't be intellectual and believe in Jesus. But that's not at all what we see in scripture. It's maybe what we find in 80s and 90s church culture, but it's not what we find in this letter that Paul wrote that now exists in our Bibles. Not only did God create our minds, But he believes from his framework, from his perspective, that our thinking, your thinking, your ability to navigate life, your brilliance being a student at American or Georgetown, he views that as intricately tied to your spirituality. There's not like this didactic relationship or this either or, or there's there's not this like disconnect between sacred and the profane or spiritual and material, but in God's creation of us. And when we realize that we are created beings, there's this holistic uh, expectation that God desires for us to look like him. He doesn't just care about one part of us, but he cares about all of us. So let's circle back to that theme for tonight. We aren't gathered here just for ourselves. Now, yes, you, you being here Uh, regardless of whether you walked from American University or you took a Lime scooter or you found your way to Sophie and you somehow got in the van after signing like five waivers for Georgetown, you're somehow here tonight. Maybe it was a chips and salsa email that I sent at 5.02 p.m. I don't know why you're here, but you're here. You should be here and it should benefit you. In other words, like, We don't just come for ourselves, but there should be some benefit to the fact that you're participating in this community or in this worship environment. Hopefully, Not just tonight, but at the end of a semester, you can look back and think, man, coming to Life Group every week, coming to weekly worship, I feel loved, I feel known, I feel blessed, I feel resourced. I'm given a name tag each week, which I still don't understand, and there's sometimes snacks. Like There should be some benefit for you, but it's important for you to know at the outset of the academic year that it's not just for you. You won't like or love every song we do, every sermon we choose, every topic we teach on. But as you are maturing in your faith, as you're becoming a mature believer, you'll put in the effort. James 4 talks about when we draw near to God, He draws near to us. You'll put in the effort to receive, to learn, and to grow. And I want to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 out of the Amplified. And I think it really kind of connects some of the ideas we've been talking about this evening. It opens up with this What then is the right course, believers? That's like, whoa, I should pay attention, right? When you meet together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, which is defined as a disclosure of special knowledge, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let everything be constructive and edifying and done for the good of all the church, or assembly slash gathering. So the italics are from the amplified, the bold is from me, and it's really kind of getting at what uh, the Corinthian church is dealing with and what they're being encouraged to look like. And the primary point of this passage isn't so that we would get stuck on thinking about, am I bringing a psalm to weekly worship? What do I think about the gifts of the Spirit? No, the primary point of this passage is that as we are in circles just like this, or as you're meeting in a dorm, at a life group at Georgetown or at American, is that we should be building and encouraging and experiencing good when we're together. Another New Testament author puts it like this, that we're to stir up good deeds of love as we gather. Like, that's the goal, is that we would experience love, not just alone, but together as a community. And honestly, if I can kind of speak candidly, we can't do this properly or fully if you're not here. The, the reality of campus ministry life, or of this community specifically, is that, that we need you. We need not just your words of wisdom or insight or sarcastic humor. We're not afraid of your doubts or the messy parts of your story or testimony, but we need you here as a fellow traveler, as someone who's also looking to follow Jesus closely. See, when Christian community is working at its best, it should function uh, like a tour guide or a guided tour. It's a shared experience. My son, he's four and a half years old. His name is Jeremiah. And um, he is like obsessed with wanting to take one of the DC tour buses, like the double decker. Like you pay $50 and someone maybe tells you a fact. Like he wants to do that for his birthday in November, which I'm, I'm not interested in, but he wants to do it. And then this morning I was dropping him off at pre-K four and he was like, hey, dad, I was like, yes, son. He was like, can we go meet Big Ben? I was like, what the, Big Ben, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, like in London, can we just go? (laughs) Now, I've got to be honest, like my son, I think he's very cute. I default to saying yes, but I was like, this is like a $1,000 commitment right here. So I went with like a kind of mediocre, like maybe, (laughs) I'll pray about it, I'll think about it. But right, like there's a shared experience when you're on a guided tour. You're going with someone that knows just a little bit more than you, and you're experiencing it together. On the other side of things, when Christian community is not working well, it it kind of functions like a travel agent or a travel agency. And you may not know what that is because you've always had the internet and stuff, but it's basically you would go to someone and they would help book your flights and experiences for you. So it was like a person that was like Google, but there was lots of them, and It's interesting because when community looks like that, when it's just like one or two people kind of telling everybody else what to do and not engaging in life with them, not experiencing things together, not going somewhere together, it doesn't really work out the way that God intends. In fact, it kind of ends up looking like a set of directives or commands or instructions that really nobody cares to follow. As a group, we're called to be with God and we're called to be with each other. Now, as a Protestant myself in a Western American Bible Belt influence context, I, I, I have to make a confession. I think that it's so easy for me personally to overemphasize original sin and to undervalue or underemphasize imago Dei or the image of God. Now, I would never say that. Like, I'm not like, hey, here's my deficiencies in theology. <laughs> Any comments? (laughs) No, but as I think back to the conversations I've had in one-on-ones, as I think back to the sermons I've preached over the past eight or nine years here in the city part of Chi Alpha, I think it's so easy for me to unintentionally drift towards an overemphasis on original sin and then uh, a lack of focus or a lack of attention to this idea that we're made in the image of God. So those are two theological terms. You probably know what they mean, uh, but let's pretend you don't, and I'll kind of do my best to explain them. So original sin a really functional, rudimentary definition. It's when brokenness entered the world through the actions of Adam and Eve, and then the consequence where it becomes real for you and I is sin nature. In other words, you and I don't need to be taught how to cheat, how to lie, how to gamble, how to steal. Like, my son doesn't need to be taught how to have a tantrum. Like, he just, it's innate. And it comes out at like 8, 17 every single night. Pray for us, friends. Please pray for my family. But then the Imago Dei, on the other side of things, the image of God or the fact that we are made in God's image, in practical or in praxis, the Bible reveals something very interesting, that we, all people, regardless of belief, are made in the image or in the reflection of God's character or or of God's likeness. And so I think that's where we engage in this tension. What part of me is sin nature and what part of me is image of God? what habits, what desires, what, what things in my own life or story, which ones kind of can be traced back to, to sin and brokenness and fallenness, and then which ones are a mere reflection of who God is and what he might want to do in my life. Being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple, is really a journey of growing in awareness of both God and who you are. We do that in the text of Scripture. We do that in our inner life through contemplation, prayer, and meditation. And we do that in the context of community. That's why you being here matters to my story. And hopefully, where maybe my story might matter to your faith journey. Not because I'm a pastor. Not because I'm a leader. Not because I have skinny jeans and a cool Georgetown hat this week. No, I do have skinny jeans and a cool Georgetown hat. Thank you. No, but because we're fellow travelers on this journey together. They were hopefully looking more like Jesus and then leading others to do the same. And I want to share just a few stories uh, from the past 18, 19 semesters, however long I've been around, um, kind of how we see this play out, how we see community and how we see this idea of we're not just here for ourselves, kind of come into the everyday life. Of students on campus. I do want to tell you a brief story about my most popular sermon. No, it's not the one you're listening to right now, and it's not the one that I expected, to be honest. Some sermons, I feel like I'll, I'll spend the summer working on them, praying on them, preparing on them, and then I'll deliver it, and it's just like, Wah! you know, it falls flat. I know you guys are shocked that I would ever be a boring communicator at any moment with this microphone. I know you're shocked. But I remember it was a few years ago, and it was the first time that I kind of from the stage or from the front ever honestly talked about while I was in a position of leadership— Kind of how my story uh, has depression and an anxiety disorder kind of woven throughout it and how I don't have like a great end of story, roll the credits moment. Like these are still struggles that I'm navigating with the help of the Holy Spirit, with biblical community, but with therapists and medication. And I remember just sharing that and just kind of like putting it all out there for the first time. And there was like a line of like eight people that wanted to talk to me after the service. I was like, eight people are trying to figure out where the offering goes? This is crazy. No, they were like, hey, I, I want to know more about what you said, or hey, I didn't know you could be um, a Christian and struggle with depression, or hey, can, you, can can you refer me to your therapist? I'm like, no, she's mine, but I'll get you another one. But it was when I was open for just a moment, it created a moment of openness for others. I think through when students have been up at the front with a microphone or sharing their story over video, I think through several students that are kind of in my mind right now, both at AU and at Georgetown, when students have kind of gotten up in front of their life group or in front of weekly worship or something similar, and they've kind of just shared what they're struggling with. Like, they've kind of put it all out there. And I can think of a few students who over the years have shared, like, hey, this is where I'm struggling with sexual immorality. This is, is how I'm trying to fight against a pornography addiction. And the moment that a, a young man or a young woman is open about that in a room like this, I mean, the first few moments are awkward. But what's really interesting is the conversations that take place after that awkward moment. It's a one-on-one, it's kind of behind the pews, it's like in life group, it's like, hey, you said this and I never knew that about you and I didn't imagine that was what you were going through, Can, can you tell me more? And it's interesting that the more we're willing to share how difficult things can be or where we've struggled, the more quickly a pathway to freedom opens up for somebody else that when we're willing to say, this is what God is doing in me, not that he's done, like I'm still in process, it's interesting the amount of people that that can resonate with. I also think of my... um, my tendency to volunteer people to pray out loud. I, I, and some of you are afraid of it, but I, I just love hearing other students pray for their campuses or for their life group. There's just something that when I hear a student praying uh, about their friend who does not yet know Jesus, it just brings like life into my own prayer life. Um, you know, I think about Emma and her prayers when we were meeting up for Vision Day before weekly worship and life group start. I feel like Emma's prayers, like she was getting me fired up. I was like, yeah, let's take this campus. I'm going to give my life to Jesus tonight, Emma, again. (laughs) Baptize me right now. And I feel like her prayers, her vibes, those are different things. Her prayers and her vibes are just like so positive. You're like, yeah, I want in on that. I love what Brian Zan says. He's a, a pastor that I listen to. He says, our prayers don't just reveal our theology, but they actually form it. So when I hear Emma praying prayers of faith, when I hear Trinity kind of talk this summer about who she's hoping comes to her life group, when I sit with Zach at the DAV over coffee and he's sharing what type of guys he wants in his life group, there's something that happens in community when we're doing it together. I was once told this by a mentor is that Jesus loves group projects, which is interesting because I hate group projects. I was homeschooled and I hate group projects. Like, sister, get out of here. But what's interesting is that when we think through the past eight or nine years of stories of life change, stories where someone's about to be baptized, taking a step of faith, stories where someone's reflecting on what Chi Alpha means to them, it's always someone in the community that's the starting point of that story. It's not usually a creative sermon series. It's not usually the songs we choose for worship. It's not usually the amazing red carpet in this room and seemingly everywhere in this church. No, It's because somebody else in the community, often not even a leader, but somebody else, a fellow participant, is loving Jesus and loving people well, and that starts the journey of transformation for somebody. We see it over and over and over again. Which brings us to kind of a a missional kind of pit stop to what we're talking about, is that if you aren't here, it means your friends probably won't be here either. In other words, you can reach and connect and love and serve people that I may never meet or, more accurately, may never like me. Like, I'm a lot to handle. I get that. Me and Ife both, okay? Like, if you, like we're not going to attract everybody into our life groups or worship services. Like, if you just got the people with the same personality, it'd be me and her and, like, a CD player worshiping Jesus in here, right? We need all different types of people and personalities and intensities, to see people that we love and care for on campus come to know Jesus. And before we go any further, I do want to mention this, just so that you understand kind of where I'm coming from tonight, is that Chi Alpha does not, like, equal the kingdom of God. We don't have, like, this special trademark on grace or Christian community. There's a lot of Jesus-loving communities on your campus or nearby at a local church. But what's really interesting is if you read Luke and Acts, both written by a guy named Luke, we find out that the kingdom of God isn't just a set of ideas, but it's more a set of best practices. And best practices that aren't done in solitary enjoyment with God, but done in the context of a group, in the context of community. So this may not be your community, and you might find somewhere else to be part of a local expression of the kingdom of God, and that's totally cool. But if you don't find a place, it will be impossible for you to be faithful to Jesus in college. If you don't find a place where people are cheering you on, affirming you, speaking life and challenging you, if you don't make that commitment here or elsewhere, the chances of you walking with Jesus long-term are not very, uh, are not very likely. There's another story that I'm thinking about, and then we'll get to questions in just a few moments. Um, I remember a student one time um, coming to me with a complaint. Um, It it happens uh, more often than you might think, but the student was like, hey, we don't go to laser tag anymore as a community, and that's really important to me. Just hold your judgment for later. Let me do all the judging. Um, They were like, I just wish we were like, like we could do laser tag again, or I wish Chi was that place where I knew everybody's name, like I used to be able to. And I don't know like what I said in that moment. I'm sure I was just like very mad at the person. What I wish I had said was, I'm really glad we didn't have that perspective before you got here. Like I'm, I wanted to say that. I probably didn't say that because I'm not confrontational. I was probably like, yeah, let me look into that, never. Um, but it's this idea that community exists for those that are here, but also for those that aren't here yet. And mature things they grow and mature things they reproduce and mature things multiply. Romans 8:12 through 14 says this for those of you that were curious if I was ever going to get to the text. Oh, I am. Here it is in verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. This is one of those passages where, like, no one's confused on what it might be saying. It's it's pretty clear. It's saying that there was this life we had before that led to unhelpful and hurtful things in our own story and the story of somebody else. But now because of the Spirit, it's not that we're obligation-free. It's that our obligations are now in a different direction. Or in other words, we're not just freed from something, we're freed for something. That's why Paul, in another letter, he writes that we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. It's, not, it's not like a great like, t-shirt. Like, nobody wants to be identified as a slave of anything. But he writes that with such visceral imagery because he wants us to know That we're set free, not so that we can be on our own, but so that we can abide and be with God and with the people of God. What does the Spirit lead us to do? It leads us to make disciples, to worship, to love when it's least expected, to speak life, to give the benefit of the doubt, to proclaim the good news, and to do so in a way that's invitational. And how are we supposed to do those things? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, I'm sure I forgot one or two other ones, these are what should mark our lives. And if you read through Romans, I've been reading through it as we've been going through this series. It'd be interesting if this week you read through Romans and you circled like I've been doing the amount of times that Paul uses those or us and the amount of times he uses me and I, both in chapter 9 and also chapters uh, that come before that. Paul is speaking about faith in a context that's always plural. Plural. He says you. He doesn't mean y'all because he's not Southern. He's probably more like means you guys, but he's talking about a plural community. In other words, for him, you could not be a follower of Jesus if you weren't near other followers of Jesus. We aren't gathered here just for ourselves. We're gathered here for those that are next to us, and we're also gathered for those who aren't here yet. It's interesting, Caroline, one of our awesome staff, she did this talk a few weeks ago amongst leaders, and she reminded us that it wasn't really even Jesus that called all of the first disciples. Like, he called a few of them, and then they called their own posses, like brothers, randos. They just kind of brought everybody on. For us, in our context, we can be so individualized, we forget that community isn't optional, that it's messy, it's imperfect, it's broken, it will disappoint you, but it is supposed to be part of, of your journey. I get, we understand that this isn't your only family. This may not even be your only family or community on campus or in the city, but theologically, if you're a follower of Jesus, this should be your truest family, or a place like this should be your truest family. All right, Trinity, you're giving me the stink eye. I will answer, I will respond. I will not answer. I will respond to three questions as best I can. Okay, the first question is, is there a limit to the point at which logic and Christianity have to divide or part ways? So starting with an easy one, thanks a lot. (laughs) It's Trinity's last week asking questions. (laughs) I don't think so, but I understand what the person is asking. I think it helps me personally to read other Christians outside of my own theological stream or theological circle and outside of this time and place to get an understanding of where logic and belief might intersect. I do think that even as you think through or you read through kind of studies on the reliability of Scripture or the historical events of the Bible, there's still a point where you will have to have faith. I think it's in Romans 8 where Paul writes that like, we hope for things that are unseen. Like, why would you even hope for, for what you already know is there? So I think that there's, a, there's still a jumping off kind of Indiana Jones stepping on the invisible rock moment, but I don't think it's as big a gap as we might assume or maybe we were told. I think some of my favorite people to be in community with are people that are still thinking and wrestling and grappling with with the Bible, and they're doing so in a way that they hope draws them to God, but it's honest and it's vulnerable. So I think I would say there's more of thoughtful Christianity to be explored, but there's always going to be that moment where we have to put uh, our trust in something beyond ourselves. I think that's actually a benefit, because I can't always trust my own emotions or thinking. So for me, and this might just be me, I love the idea of an objective truth or an anchor point kind of for my life and my story. Um, But yeah, great question. All right, next question. They don't get harder in difficulty, do they? Um, I don't think so. Okay, great. (laughs) I want to start like a dialogue. Like it's a talk show and she's the cool one and I'm just up here. But okay, cool. Only Robert liked Um. it. Awesome. (laughs) All right, how do you deal with your parents thinking that you're going crazy because of how religious you are or are growing to be? Mm Mm-hmm. The strange scripture that comes to mind is when Jesus talks about, in some ways, that his message brings a sword or brings division. He also speaks very interestingly and candidly about like, our love for God should be so deep and so great that, in contrast, it's like we hate those that are closest to us, like family and friends. I think we... I think it's important for this person or other people that have this question to think about how long it took you to get where you are and then allow your parents that same amount of time of grace to understand who you're becoming. It's like whenever I go to a church conference without the staff, I always come back with like a hundred ideas that I want to do tomorrow tomorrow. But they weren't with me the whole, like, 80 hours I was eating Taco Bell, hanging out with pastors and donors of Chi Alpha. And they're like, whoa, 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 we're changing the name of everything? And I'm like, the Lord told me through this popular hipster pastor guy. Like, it doesn't work. So I I, I think you have to, like, I think you have to be gracious and then remember, like, all that they've seen you through and then kind of reflect that grace back to them. Um, But it does always come to a point where, you might be gracious and understanding and patient and they still don't get it. You have to answer for yourself, is following Jesus enough? Am I here to honor my parents only or am I here to, in my priorities to honor and serve God? That's difficult, especially kind of in your life stage as emerging adults. Like you're trying to figure out, like you go home for Christmas and then your parents are like, you know the rules in my house. You're like, dude, I live in a dorm. I don't need your rules, dad. Well, this is my own story. And yeah, you're trying to figure it out. So I love how in scripture it says to honor um, our, our, our father and mother, um, but that doesn't always equal obedience or that doesn't always mean agreement. You can honor without agreement. Uh, if I could only honor people I agreed with, I'd just honor myself. Next question. I thought you got the mic drop moment there, but you were looking for something better. I'm sorry. That's all. I gave it all I had. I'm sweating under this hat, okay? This is the last question, but how can we live in the freedom that Jesus gives us if we are still battling sin? Yeah, great question. I think I'd respond by looking at Romans 8:15. It's a verse past what we've been studying, and it says this, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear, Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. I think, I think that God is not as surprised as we think he is, that we still struggle with desires of the flesh, or we still struggle choosing which identity to live in, who we were, who we will be in him. I think students sometimes, maybe they come to me or to a staff member like in the mode of confession, I think students are always afraid they're going to like confess something that I've never heard about. Like, whoa, I've never heard that sin. That's crazy. You're so creative and sinning. No, we've all kind of heard what distances us from God. And I think that Paul writes, even, I mean, even Paul, right? With this crazy story, his renaming, his new heart, he says like, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I should do. Like, oh, that's me with five alarms every morning. (laughs) Like, that's exactly my life story. So I think that we can draw near to God in our weakness, and then we can discover his strength. So I don't think we'll ever, on this side of eternity or in this part of our lives on earth, kind of get to a point where we're, like, professional in our new identity, but I think it's about learning and growing, uh, not pass and fail. I learned that in Chi Alpha. Someone sat me down and said, hey, leading Chi Alpha, being a student in Chi Alpha, it's not about passing the field, it's about learn and grow. And that's not comfortable for me. It's not how I naturally see the world, but it's what the text really looks like in the life of the disciples, especially the relationship between Jesus and Peter. I feel like it's, it's part of that kind of learn and grow mentality. So I hope that's a helpful response. Hey, as the worship team comes up and we prepare to respond, one of the reasons that we sing a song at the end of uh, our services is not just so that we can, you know, end on a sing-along note, but it's so that we can respond. Like, we teach, we preach, we read Scripture, but it's a means to an end. And what is that end? It's getting close to God. It's being in community and in communion with Him and with others. One of my pastors at my church, her name is Heather, she talks a lot about pre-decisions, And I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but she kind of talks about making commitments or decisions to things, people, communities, or goals before you need to, or before you have to. In other words, she's saying that there's a path um, of growth that's by maturity, and you don't necessarily have to choose the path of necessity. Like, I think most of my growth in following Jesus isn't because I was mature enough to grow, it's just I needed to grow in that moment. Like, my old ideas about God weren't helping me in my today. But I love this idea of of pre-decisions, that there comes a point, and maybe that point for many of you is tonight with your life group, with weekly worship, and it's probably not just for you that are here for your very first time. You've been here for three years, and you're like, hey, I'm spending a lot of time in this community. Is it worth it? What I know about myself and about others is that, I mean, those pre-decisions are key to our growth that before we need to, before the drama hits, before the disappointment sets in, before we have another great day or another bad day where we commit, hey, I'm gonna be a part of a community. If you're looking for the perfect place, the perfect campus ministry, you've not found it in Chi Alpha, but you probably won't find it anywhere else. If you're looking for a place where you're loved and cared for through affirmation and challenge, then this would be a good place for you. But if you're looking to be in a community where you can stay the same, this is, it's probably not going to be a great fit. If you're willing to say yes, to show up, to let your faith story impact somebody else's, then we hope that you would find a home here or in a place like this. In closing, before we respond, just this final thought that if you only remembered one thing, it's that man, you are freed not just from something, but for something that there's a reason that you're here in this room tonight and it has very little to do with chips and salsa. And there's something that God is doing in you that he wants to also do through you. See, when we follow Jesus, our story is no longer just ours. We're obligated to the Spirit, as Paul says, to live according to the leading of the Spirit. So why don't you stand with me as we prepare to sing and worship in response? I did want to mention one more time, we didn't do this last week, but hey, we have these prayer request cards. We have them here at the altar. We have them at our hospitality booth. Like you can just fill it out. You can put your name, not put your name, but we have students and staff that pray over these often. Listening to a message doesn't change your life. Responding to God from a message or from the stirring of the Spirit is where you experience change. So maybe you do need to come to the altar and awkwardly step out and find a place to write your prayer request and put it in. We want to pray with you. Maybe you do need to find a staff. Maybe you need to find a life group leader at your table or from your campus. But I mean, you're here and I'm sure that you're fighting things that none of us in this room know about, but I want to tell you that you don't have to do it alone. And as you open up, as you're vulnerable, you're never going to be so vulnerable that we don't want to be near you. God, I pray that as we respond individually, as we respond collectively, that we would listen to your spirit, that we would listen to what you're speaking in our inner life. God, that we would respond, not because of something I said, but because of the truth of who you are in Scripture. I pray for moments of powerful prayer where we can borrow each other's faith or we can speak life into difficult situations. God, I pray this would be less of us spectating and more of us participating in a family together. And we thank you and we trust you and we pray with expectation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Prayer buckets are up front. Staff will be on the sides and green name tags. Let's respond in worship together.